Eric Little was fast. And in the spring of 1924, he was given an opportunity to let the world see that. He, in fact, was probably the fastest man on the planet at that point in time. So much so that when he was slotted to run the 100 meter, he was basically guaranteed to win the gold. The problem with that is that he was also a very devout Christian, Presbyterian by tradition, which meant for him that he felt that God had forbid him from doing any work on the Sabbath, which in his understanding would have been on the Sunday. The conflict came when he realized that his heat, the qualifying heat for the 100 meter, was on a Sunday. He was then left with the decision as to whether or not he would disregard the word of God in order to win the fame and acclamation and the applause of others. Well, it was no difficult decision for him. As soon as he realized the conflict, he immediately withdrew himself from the 100 meter. Except everyone in his life, including those from his home country, Scotland, begged him, please, Eric, reconsider. You have the opportunity to win Scotland the gold, the first one that we've ever received. And think about how much good and glory God would receive by you doing this in his honor and on his behalf. And Eric Little continued to think through this. And he was given the opportunity to decide whether or not he would win the gold or whether or not he would forfeit it in order to obey God, his master. As we talk about the nature of authority, I want us to start thinking through this in the next four weeks, what authority should look like in our lives and the nature of that authority and why God has put it in our lives in the first place. Because whether or not you know it or realize it, authority is a good thing that God has instituted. We're going to be faced with challenges, maybe not exactly like Eric, but in something similar where we're faced to say whether or not we're going to obey God or whether or not we're going to do what's best for our own interests. Because let's face it, if Eric Little would have won a gold medal for the 100 meter, he would have been put on the world stage. He would have been famous. He would have won you know, sponsorships and got lots of money and acclamation for that. We'll return to him at the end of the service. But suffice to say, if we fail to understand why authority is good, we'll never learn to thrive under it. We'll see it as an obstacle to our growth rather than the vehicle to our growth. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to try not to do that this entire sermon. Uh, I want us to see why authority is good, starting with the preeminence and highest authority in our lives. And it's important that we lay the foundation here because if we, get, if we get this part wrong, everything else we build on top of it will be foolish, will be, will be fickle. We need to understand the authority that God has. All authority is God's authority, and Jesus is supreme. Jesus is meant to be the authority in your life and mine that controls every single thing else about us. Uh, the subtitle of your sermon there shows that everything else in your life matters and it's contingent upon who you call the supreme authority in your lives. Now, my concern this morning is not that you don't call God authority in some measure because you're here. In some way or shape or form, God is your authority. But my concern is that you get it right and not just call him authority with your lips, but rather recognize him authority as his authority with your heart, your full person. And we're going to look at the authority of Christ himself first, because he is the supreme authority in all of our lives, whether or not we choose to recognize that or not. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. It says this, He is, that is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What's important to recognize here is that Jesus makes, first of all, makes God who is invisible, he makes him visible. Jesus is the representation, the human and incarnate representation of God himself. God, according to John chapter 4, is invisible because he's spirit. He's non-corporeal. He doesn't possess a body of flesh, but he is invisible. But Jesus, being born in, in the likeness of human flesh, makes visible what is invisible. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says that God is the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. 1 John 4.12 says that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, according to John 1.18, makes him known. So first and foremost, it's important to realize that Jesus is no mere man, but rather is the very image of the invisible God. But here we encounter a very unique phrase. He is called the firstborn of all creation. Now, if any of you have Jehovah's Witnesses friends, they're going to use this verse in support of their theory that Jesus is not necessarily fully God. He's a God, uh, and he's really truly the Archangel Michael, but he's also the first thing that God made in all creation. This heresy goes back to Arius. It's called Arianism, the belief that Jesus is not God who is equal with the Father, but rather a lesser type, a lower form of God, so to speak. And this heresy has been, I mean, it's, it has continued throughout all the ages throughout church history, including today. Like I said, Jehovah's Witnesses still cling to this. So what I need you to understand from this text, first and foremost, is what this does and does not teach. The firstborn of all creation does not mean that Jesus was the first thing made. I'll prove it to you from the text, and I'll also prove it to you from other texts that point out this distinction. There are two ways for firstborn to be used. One, the first way is for firstborn to be understood as literally the first one who is born in a family line. The second way to understand firstborn is a term of preeminence, first in importance, first in rank. Let me show you from a few different texts what that looks like. Genesis chapter 41 I need you to pay attention to this. Verses 51 and 52, it says, Joseph called the name of the firstborn son Manasseh. Pay attention to that. Okay, there's going to be a pop quiz in two minutes. And Joseph's firstborn son is Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Verse 52, and the name of the second he calls Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Okay, so pop quiz. Who is the firstborn son? And the secondborn? Okay, well, the Bible disagrees with you because according to Jeremiah 31, verse 9, it says here, For I am a father to Israel, and Manasseh is my firstborn. doesn't say that, though, does it? Ephraim is my firstborn. It's a shorthand way. It's a nickname of calling Israel, uh, referring to the, tw the, ten the ten tribes of Israel. And so what you see here is the Bible taking the term firstborn and using it not in a literal sense of first in line, but rather first in rank, first in importance. And so when we go back to Colossians chapter 1 and we see that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, we recognize that what God is saying here through the pen of the apostle Paul is not that Jesus is the first one made in all creation. We, <coughs> excuse me. We also see that in the text because in verse sixteen it says, "By him, the firstborn of all creation, all things were created." If Jesus created all things, he could not be a thing. You follow that logic? If by him all things were created, he himself could not be a thing that was created. 
And in fact, to make it abundantly clear, in case we think, well, maybe Jesus is the exception, it goes on to say here, all things include things in heaven and things on earth. So it's saying it's not just some things, everything that you see and things that you don't see. Everything on earth and heaven, visible and invisible, has been made by Jesus. And then notice here it talks about thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, which, by the way, this is what our series is is all about. Notice who invented authority in the first place. God. The authorities that you and I sit under, although we may never always like them, are things that God himself has established. But I want to make a point here that that's actually not what this verse is talking about. Thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities refer to the created class of angelic beings. So Jesus, again, making all things visible and invisible, creates angels. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, you get a sense of what he's talking about. Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That is, humans, we're not wrestling and fighting against human people. We're fighting against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. All of those things are referring to the angelic class talking about the things that Jesus himself created. All that to say, what this verse, these first two verses are telling us is that Jesus is something that is more than just an exalted man. Jesus is the incarnation of God himself. And furthermore, he possesses all rule and all authority and all power. He created everything and therefore he he is due all honor, glory, power, and praise. The first point I want to make to you in this series, and the very first thing that you and I need to wrestle with here, is understanding and respecting Jesus as the rightful, rightful ruler of all creation. Oftentimes we look at... Siri gone crazy. Um, oftentimes we look at Jesus and we perhaps don't understand him or see him as we rightly should. We have a human tendency to get familiar with God and think of him in lowly terms. Unless we're deliberate to foster a high view of him, we begin to drift into casualness about him. Some of the great worship songs of the past make that clear. In fact, that's one of the reasons that our worship music tends to be very different than some of the churches around us. One of the songs that we choose not to do has a lyric that says, So heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. That's gross. I don't want a sloppy wet kiss from heaven. There's another song that talks about God like this. He's like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Now, I'll just tell you, I love that song, but I don't love that lyric because first and foremost on God's mind when he went to the cross was not necessarily you and me. It was his father's glory. Another song that I sang when I was in youth group was this one. This one's a bit creepy. Draw me close to you and never let me go. Sounds like you're talking to a girlfriend. I lay it all down again to hear you say that I'm your friend. You are my desire. Nothing else will do because nothing else can take your place to feel the warmth of your embrace. Help me find a way. Bring me back to you. And then the chorus goes, you're all I want. You're all I want. You're all I want. Um... The problem with songs like that is it takes the exalted ruler, the rightful ruler of all creation, and lowers him down into a subpar understanding, a a minimized view of who he truly is. And the problem that we have as Christians, and and all around us, our culture minimizes the beauty, the grandeur, and the glory of Christ. You and I cannot let this happen. You and I have to work diligently to see Jesus for who he truly is. Look again with me at the text. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation, which at the very least means that you and I need to worship Jesus 
Jesus as God. Worshiping Jesus as God. That's at the very least what this means for us. When we look at him and we understand him, we have to understand we're coming and we're, we're beholding the very God of creation. When you and I do worship, and I understand worship is much bigger than what Ian does up here with the band, but let's just for the sake of example use this here. When we look at worship, we have to understand that our worship cannot just be a casual, ho-hum, regular part of our week. It needs to be intentional, real, heartfelt, kind of respect and deference that God requires of those who draw near to him. You might have read recently in Leviticus chapter 10, about Nadab and Abihu, who are Aaron's sons, two of them anyway. They approached God the wrong way. They went to him casually, carelessly, and they paid dearly. Take a look with me. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it. So a censer is like a little uh, brass thing that you hold. There's fire in it, and you, you offer it before the Lord. They put incense on it. And they offered, get this, unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Nadab and Abihu approached God on terms that they decided, not what God had wanted, not what God had decided. They said, I'm going to go to God and do what I want to do. I think it'd be fine if I approached God on my own terms as opposed to what God wanted. And here's what God did. Verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. Pause and feel that. They approached God carelessly, haphazardly, selfishly, and God consumed them with fire. There's another verse that says, Our God is a consuming fire, which is to say, God is holy, perfect in righteousness. And for the moment, however, however long, Nadab and Abihu went crazy. They came to God on their own terms and said, God, we don't care what your word says. We're going to do what we want. And God slaughtered them. Now, if you're Aaron, their father, how would you feel about that? You're Aaron, the high priest, and your sons just get crushed by God because he judged them immediately. They died before the Lord. Verse 3, then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. And this is what you and I need to take to heart, young people. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Is there room in your theology to see God in this light? Is there room in your understanding, your conception of God, that is willing to see God in an exalted status such that his holiness is greater than you can fathom and his purity is better and perfect so that when you approach him, you approach him uh, carefully, wisely, and not callously or carelessly. You're approaching him as God of very gods. That is how we need to approach Jesus because he's not a mere figment of our imagination. He is the Lord of glory. When you worship God, do you worship God as you should? Or do you simply parrot the words on the screen, as I often say? When you pray to him, do you give him the rightful honor that he deserves? When you come to worship services on Sunday, are you preparing yourself to approach him? Are you asking God to help you to see him for who he is? Or are you simply going through the motions? Are you simply just going through over and over again the Sunday services that your parents force you to come to? Understanding Jesus as the rightful ruler of creation means that we worship him as God. But not only that, if you look at verse 17, excuse me, verse 16, it says here that 
By him, all things were created. That is, Jesus is the agent of creation in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And what are those last two words? All things were created for him. Let me put it this way. When you're thinking about Jesus as the rightful ruler of creation, we should not only be worshiping him as God, we should also be serving him as slaves. You and I, believe it or not, everyone in this room are slaves. No matter if you're a Christian or not, every single person in this room is a slave. You're either a slave of God, which is far better, or you're a slave of what? You're a slave of sin, death, and primarily the devil. You are, according to Ephesians chapter 2, a son or daughter of disobedience. And therefore, when it comes to seeing Jesus as rightful ruler, it means willingly submitting yourself to his rule and reign as a slave. And understand that term has baggage, especially in our nation's history. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about kidnapping and enslaving African Americans to do our bidding. We're talking about the kind of slavery that the Bible conceives of. The word is doulos, and it's used 127 times in the ESV that we read. And the term can be translated servant, slave, or bondservant. The term is exactly what we think it means. It's someone who doesn't have a choice for, which, for what they do, but rather they perform duties whether he likes it or not because we are subject as slaves to the will of the owner. I want you to understand that if you're calling yourself a Christian this morning, young person, your life has been given fully and completely over to the will of God in Christ. And this is the thing, when Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us not to be uh, dictators of our own lives. He calls us to be subjects submitted to his will and his desires for us. Are you submitting to that? Are you submitting to it as a slave? I mean, I can ask you right now, tell me about your Bible reading this week. I've been using the Bible app recently. Uh, tracking my Bible reading on that. And I love one of the features that it has. I can see when you're highlighting things. I can see when you check off the, the Bible reading plan for the day. I love being able to see that because I finally have a sense, a better sense of what your interaction looks like with the Bible. And I don't have all you all of you guys as friends on there, but I'm loving what I'm seeing. There's a lot of you guys who are engaging with it on a semi-regular basis. Some of you even more than that. In a way, that's very exciting for me. But I also recognize there's a lot of people on there, and not that this is indicative of your Bible reading necessarily, but people who are on there but aren't really on there. There's people who call themselves Christians and yet find little, if any, time to be in the Bible. Are you really submitting to Christ as slave if you're not willing, willing to read his word? Or can you really call yourself a believer, a Christian, if you're not even willing to pick up his Bible on a daily basis? Well, let's go one step deeper here. Tell me about your prayer life this week. Christ calls us to, to submit to him by asking, seeking, and knocking. Remember that, right? Ask, seek, and knock. Those who ask, receive. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, the door will be open. How's your prayer life? Well, Pastor Rod, I, I pray all day, every day. I'm, I'm on the First Thessalonians 5.17 per person. I pray at all times. Do you spend dev, uh, devoted, dedicated time with your Lord in prayer? Because that's what he asks of you. No, let me take that back. That's what he demands of us as his believers. We can by no means call Jesus our master for not willing to submit to him as slaves. And not only that, let me show you how Jesus conceives of us. When we serve him, it's not like Jesus is saying, well, great job. Here's a gold star. You did what you were supposed to do. No, look at how he describes our service to him. Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 7, he says this. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, hey, come at once and recline at table. Pause for a second. Let me explain what's happening. He's saying, imagine you have a slave and they're in the field and they've done, they've done everything they're supposed to do. They're slaves. 
And then they come inside and you as the master say, hey, you look tired. Come in, let me take care of you. Get at the table and I'll go and serve you. Does the master do that for the slave? And Jesus is making a point. That's not what happens. He says, verse 8, will he not rather instead, won't he say, hey, get inside and prepare dinner for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you can eat and drink. So once you come inside from plowing the field and working, working the field, like I told you, then come inside and serve me. That's what a typical master-slave relationship looks like. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The implication, no. He, of, course, of course he doesn't. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Verse 10, though, is the clincher. This is where he looks at you and me and says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Do you have room in your theology to think of God like that? Young person, I want you to get real with yourself for a second and ask, have I really submitted my life to Christ? Is he truly my authority? Is he truly the one that can say, yeah, he controls everything that I do. He's the one who governs how I live, how I act, how I move. Let's continue to build on this here. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. He is before all things. And in him and Jesus, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I love this section. Look at this. Let's look at this again and dive into it. He is before all things. What does that mean? It means that before anything was created, Jesus existed. You remember in John chapter 8, verse 58, he's talking to the rulers and he says, before Abraham was what? I am. Unequivocally stating that he is Yahweh incarnate. Before any of you were even born, I was around, Jesus says. And that's what Paul is saying here. Before all things, before anything was made, Jesus was there at the beginning of creation and before it. But even on top of that, he makes another statement. He says, in him, all things hold together, which is to say, you might think it's gravity that's keeping you planted and keeping your body together. But he's saying Jesus is the one who willingly, actively holds all of creation together so that by Jesus' will, everything exists. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, yeah, we can talk about uh, the first law of thermodynamics. We can talk about science and the nature of uh, atoms and physics and all of this. And those are all true. As we study science, I'm not disavowing any of that. What I am saying, though, is that Jesus is the force behind those things. Why do atoms stay together? Why, why Why do we still possess Bodies that fit and work together. Why are we not flying off the face of the planet? Why does creation work the way it does? Well, because we have a good designer who put it together that way. It is because of Jesus that all things hold together. And on top of that, Jesus is not only, uh, not only the, the Lord of creation, but look at this, verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. And you should be familiar with that terminology if you studied with this Ephesians chapter 5. The, the husband is the head of the wife as Jesus is the what? head of the church, which is to say the body is dependent upon the head. You take the head off the body, you have a lifeless dead body. 
Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be be preeminent. And this is what the whole point of these verses are. Jesus being the first and foremost of all creation. He's first place. He's the blue ribbon winner. He's the gold trophy winner. Jesus is first. The only right response then is to respond with unqualified submission to Jesus. To let Jesus rule and sustain your life in such a way where it is abundantly clear that there are no other competitors in your life. So often people are confronted with submitting to Christ and the response is, well, uh, I'll follow you if you don't make me uncomfortable. I'll follow you if you don't make me break up with her. I'll follow you if you don't make me lose friends. I'll follow you if, adding an asterisk to our service. Luke chapter 9, Jesus confronted some of these people that would add qualifiers to their service and they're following him. Luke chapter 9, verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go say farewell to those back at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The only right response to Jesus is unqualified submission, which is to say a blank check, giving Jesus the check of your life and saying, God, write whatever you want in there. I am fully yours, no questions asked, no strings attached. Is that your heart toward God? That's the only right response. And yet I'm sure that for some of you guys, if you were honest, there are idols that still stand in your heart that still hold you back from saying, I'll follow you this far, Jesus, but don't you touch my sports. Don't you touch my academics. Don't you touch my extracurricular activities. I'll follow you, Lord, insofar as you don't compromise my values and what I want to do. If Christ is to be anything in your life, he must be first. And there are no substitutes. Christ must be first in your life, young person. Which means, at the very least, at the core of your identity... You should embrace being called a Christian. You should embrace being called after your Lord and your King, who is not ashamed to call you sons and daughters, by the way. Why would we be ashamed to call Him our Lord, to call Him our Savior? Is there any reason why you would ever disavow following Jesus first in your life? Has He given you any reason why He has not earned your unqualified submission? This means letting people know whose you are and who you belong to. Sure, your friends might think of you poorly. They might call you the goody two-shoes, but who cares? Who cares? Did Christ not earn your favor? Did Christ not earn your allegiance? Christ first in your identity. That's what you've got to think about. When people ask who you are, the first and foremost answer is, I am Christ's, and I'm not ashamed of that. I am Christ. I belong to him. He purchased my redemption on the cross. I'm not ashamed to call him my Lord. Christ first in your identity. How about Christ first in your scholastics? I get this. This is a touchy one because for most of you, school is your job right now. But maybe five APs and three ABs is not the best way to approach high school. 
because that does tend to put you a lot on your plate. And maybe doing varsity and club and everything else on top of that crowds your schedule so much that you're too busy even for Christ. Some of you guys struggle to even get enough sleep in. But I would challenge you, are you putting Christ first in your scholastic activity? Is Christ first in your school schedule? Some of you guys had a zero period through the sixth period and then the extra period after that and then the, and then the study classes after that and then the homework clubs after that. Is it too much? If you're too busy for God, you're too busy. How about your sports? Again, for some of you, is Christ first in your sports? It's not uncommon for people in a sports team to cuss. That's kind of what you do, right? You cuss and you, you, you grunt and you sweat a lot. But if Christ is first in your sports activity, that's going to that's gonna clean your speech up quite a bit. And not only that, but it's going to change the way that you talk about the opposing team. Because sportsmanship, at the very least, is what God demands of us. Is Christ first in your job? Do any of you guys have jobs? Some of you guys do. If you work at In-N-Out, you're especially cool. I worked at McDonald's, and I told you that before. Working at McDonald's, if you're a Christian and Christ is first in your job, it's going to change the way that you are seen as an employee. At the very least, I should hear from every single one of your bosses that you are among their best employees. Because Christians work not for the paycheck, not for the boss. They work for who? Jesus. I got paid one time. I got paid multiple times, but one time especially. (laughs) One time I got paid a lot more money than I was supposed to get. And for a few moments, I was tempted just to kind of look the other way and assume I just got a bonus that they weren't aware of. But then I realized, okay, these guys know I'm a Christian. And so I went to my manager and said, hey, uh, it's grossly overpaid. My manager looked at me and was surprised for a moment. She said, thank you. I'll get that fixed up for you right away. You know, besides the attaboy, I got a pat in the back, but I didn't really get much else after that. But I knew that my managers knew that I was a man of integrity, at least in that area. <laughs> my managers knew that I stood for what was right and good and true. They loved me as a result of that. And as Christians, it means that we as believers, we're, we're, we're people of integrity. Because we respond to Jesus with unqualified submission, that means every other area of our, of our lives doesn't get compromised because we don't see, oh, this is my church life and this is my school life and this is my work life. All of our lives are under the dominion of God, not cheating our time clock. Which, by the way, when you do get a job, it's not a sin to say, hey, I I really want Sundays off and I want Wednesdays off. I want to make sure that I can be at church because you know who's my boss? It's not the paycheck. The money's not my boss. Jesus is my boss. He's the one that I serve. I was so excited to hear someone recently who just told their, who told their manager, I need Wednesdays off. And you know what their manager did? Fired him. No, they didn't actually. The manager was like, all right, we can do that. You can do that. Putting Jesus first in your life means you're going to have to make some concessions in other parts of your life. But when we obey God, things are always far better for us than when we try to compromise our values in order to, to meet the, the, the demands of other areas, other parts of our lives. Respond to Jesus with unqualified submission. Why? Because he's the Lord of glory. He's the ruler of all creation. He is the one who is before all things. If you truly believe what First Colossians 1, verses 17 and 18 say, he will have to be first and foremost in your life. Again, students, I ask you, is Jesus truly the ruler of your life? Is Jesus truly the one that you can say is your king and your Lord? If not... 
I want you to pay special attention then to these next few verses. Colossians verses, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We already talked about that. Uh, this only makes it all the more clear. Jesus is the fullness of God. The full essence of what it means to be God was found in Christ. Verse 20. And through him, through this God-man, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is massive. But he's, he's saying here, it was pleasing for God to reconcile the world and all creation to himself. And we're only seeing a taste of it right now. There's two... There's two uh, there's two facets to salvation. There's the salvation that we acquire, forgiveness in Christ, and then the salvation of the world, the redemption of all creation. So when it says here, all things, that's referring to both you and I, but also heaven and earth are going to be in some day, some way, fully refurbished and remade to reflect the glory of God perfectly. Until then, we wait. But in the meantime, what we have access to is peace by the blood of his cross, peace with God. Young person, if your life has not yet been fully submitted to the beauty of the glory of God, let me encourage you to do this. See, the, the problem with submitting to leadership or any authority whatsoever is that all authority, short of God himself, is broken. Every man, woman, and child on this planet suffers from a malady called sin. And therefore, your bosses, no matter how great they are, are going to be tainted. They're going to make wrong decisions. They're going to say things to you in ways that you don't appreciate. Your parents are going to command you to do something, and they're not going to say it in a way that you prefer. They're going to say it in ways that hurt you, anger you, frustrate you. All bosses suffer from the same malady, sin. But the beauty about Christ is that he didn't take his lordship and crush you with it. He could have, could he not? If Christ is who we think he is, he's God in the flesh, could he not in this very moment crush all of us and burn us to pieces with his righteous wrath and indignation? He could. And yet, here's how he responds. Jesus, instead of coming to us with anger and wrath and violence. He came to us, though he was in the form of God, not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, doulos, slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The way that Jesus approaches you and me is not with a heavy hand, not with an iron fist, not with a rod of correction, although that is coming. Right now, the way that he approaches us is as a humble Savior, ready for you to say you can be at peace with God right now by simply submitting to your life to him. So really, let's round off this sermon in this way. Receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. It's time. Today is a day of salvation, not tomorrow. Don't wait until you have uh, don't, don't wait until you have these feelings of movement. Get your life right with God right now. But to do that means you have to approach Jesus in two ways, as both Lord and Savior. You can't have him as your Savior and not take him as Lord. You can't say, Jesus, yeah, I want your grace and your forgiveness, but I really don't want your Bible. I don't want your prayer. I don't want your church. I don't want any of those other things. Just give me the salvation. Give me the get out, get out of hell free card. It's not the way to approach Christ. 
to receive Jesus as both Lord and Savior is to recognize that all of his words count. That we're obliged to follow all of the words that we say. Rather, all the words that he says. I find myself sometimes reading the Bible and tell me if you ever had this experience where you read some of the words and you're like, man, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> that makes me uncomfortable. Uh, it's, I struggle to read some of the things that God has written in the pages of scripture. And that might surprise you because I'm a pastor. Right? I should love everything that God says. And I do love God's word. I do love it. But I can also tell you as a pastor, when I find things in the Bible that challenge me, I recognize I'm not serving someone I made in my own image. I'm reading God's, God's thoughts, God's words. And so when God confronts you with things that you don't like, for instance, one of the hot topics of the day that keeps coming up is the homosexual lifestyle and the sexual revolution. When we read words that confront that and challenge that and contradict that, we don't just say, well, just throw that out. That's old fashioned. We say, no, this is God's word. And even if I don't like the way that talks about that particular sin, I'm not going to simply throw it out because Jesus isn't just my savior. He is my Lord. He is my king. He is my God. He is my primary and highest authority. I read a survey recently by Barna. He runs a lot of surveys. But he said, according to 40%, 47% of millennials that were surveyed, evangelism is wrong. Morally wrong. 47%. That's the generation right before you. You guys are considered Generation Z. But millennials, Generation Y, 47% of them said evangelism is wrong. You really only can believe that. You can only say that if you don't read God's word. If you take out Matthew 28 from your Bible, sure, go for it. Evangelism is wrong. But the whole purpose that we're here is to make disciples. If we're going to receive Jesus as Savior, we also need to receive him as Lord. Young person, why, why do you delay? Why do you wait? Why do you wait for God to do something beyond what he's already done for you in this life. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to get right with God once and for all to surrender your life to him and say, God, you are king and I am not. And to truly mean that, not simply to say it with your lips because there is a danger, is there not? Of simply saying, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll do what you say, but not actually doing it. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, he says this, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And that son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And then he went to the other son and he said the same. And the son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And perhaps it might be the case with you this morning. You might say, Pastor, yeah, I agree with everything. Um, Jesus is the Lord. He's the king. He's my ruler. I, I will go. I will do whatever he says. And, and then you don't. You hold back yourself. You hold back your words. You hold back your whole heart from God because you're afraid of what that's going to mean for you. You don't have to do that today. Today can be the day of your salvation where you fully surrender your life to a good and gracious God. When you come to him as your savior, also come to him as your Lord. Many will declare with their lips that they've submitted to him, but fail to actually follow through with their lives. Don't let that be you. Well, Eric Little was pressured by a host of people to run in the Olympic Games in the spring of 1924. Again, many did kind of uh, attempt to dissuade him from from not running in the qualifying heats on that Sunday. So you know what he did? 
he didn't run. He didn't qualify. Instead, that very day, he went to all Scott's church and he preached. But knowing that he was disqualified from the 100 meter didn't stop him from having some Olympic ambitions. He still trained. And he ran two other events that he was not scheduled to even place in, much less win. They were the 200 and the 400 meter dash. Well, the day came for the 400 meter, and he did run. He's in the far left-hand lane on, on the screen here. This is actual footage, by the way, of that, that day. There he is rounding the corner here. Eric Little gave his very best, and he did everything he could to honor God by running as fast as he possibly could. And God smiled upon him that day and honored him by letting him win the race. Yeah, believe it or not, this was, and they don't look like they're running that fast, but that was a challenge. Eric Liddell won the gold in the 400-meter race. And then he got the bronze in the 200-meter. And get this. <laughs> Liddell, after, uh, Little rather, uh, Little gave up his athletic career as soon as these, these, these events were over. Do you want to know why? Earlier I said, uh, he was quoted as saying, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. He actually didn't say that. That's from the movie. But he, he did say, God made me for China. Little gave up everything, the world's fame and fortune and all that it had to offer so that he could be a missionary to China. You know why he did that? Here's what he said. It's been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I've had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. Eric Little was living for a greater authority, a higher authority, a greater privilege and pleasure than what this life has to offer. I would encourage you to live your life in submission to the authority of God and gain the rewards that endure through eternity. Let's pray.